0: I'm a media professor, and accordingly, by contractual obligation, I have to hate reality television shows, because they're lowbrow, and beneath me, and all that sort of thing, right? I have to hate reality TV shows. And combined with that, I am also an absolutely horrendous cook. Uh, Everything, I, I, I can burn water, it's one of those sort of situations. My wife mercifully does the cooking in our family. And so you take those two aspects of me and you put them together and then it's very, very unusual that my favorite television show uh, right now is uh, the Great British Baking Show uh, or the Great British Bake Off as they call it over the pond. Has anybody seen this show? Yeah? I love this show, right? These like the people are not mean to each other. Like you'd love to have tea with any of them and, uh, and it takes these elements of things that I typically don't like and it puts them together, and weirdly, it becomes something that I do like. The show itself is even kind of about that, because they take things that independently are all disgusting, right? Nobody wants to eat just like a stick of butter, uh, unless you're like in a very unhealthy place uh, after COVID, right? Uh, uh, Nobody will just take a raw egg and crack it into their mouths and consume that. Nobody is shoveling flour into their mouths, but you watch the show. And they take the flour, and they take the eggs, and they take the milk, and they take the butter, and they put them all together, and they stir them, and they put them in the oven, and out comes something that's magical. Out comes something beautiful. You take all sorts of things that independently don't work, that independently are disgusting, and you put them together, and they create something that's beautiful and new. Sometimes the people on the show will take something that doesn't seem like it ought to work in combination with something else. So they'll take all the normal ingredients, they'll make the cake, and then it'll be like, and I've combined it with jalapeno poppers. And you're like, I'm not sure whether that's a good idea or not, and the judges try it, and sometimes it's a total flop like you'd expect, and sometimes it's a triumph, and you're like, huh, I better try jalapeno popper angel food cake or whatever, right? Uh, Sometimes you can take very, very different things. You can put them together, and in a surprising way, They reveal something new and interesting. We're kind of standing at exactly that point right now uh, in terms of our year, because right now we are standing at the conflux of three different major celebrations. On the one hand, we've just finished the end of the previous uh, church year. This is technically New Year's Day for a Christian. This is the first day of the Christian year. So we've just come out of this observation of end times. And as I said before, during the season of end times, we dwell on where the world is heading. And it isn't heading to pretty places. This is not news to anybody here. If you look outside, you can see a world going mad and, uh, and experience a feeling of powerlessness to press the brakes on the whole thing, right? We identify rather strongly and easily with the end times. And despite the fact that we can view it optimistically as Christians, there's still a feeling of darkness. There's still even maybe a feeling uh, of a pinch of desperation. During the season of Advent, it would seem like we're looking at something entirely different. Advent is all looking forward to the coming of Christ. We've got Christmas coming up. On Christmas, we celebrate the birth of God in human form into this world. Tremendous Christian celebration. We gear up for it along with John the Baptist. We gear up for it along with the Old Testament believers as we look forward to his coming. How that blends with end times seems a little wonky. And then we've got this third element, which is we just had Thanksgiving. And uh, do you guys have church on Thanksgiving here, out of curiosity? Wednesday church. Okay. I was curious about that. Some churches still do. Some, uh, many churches don't. People are out of town. People are traveling. It's a strange day uh, to, uh, to have a church service to observe it. And yet for Christians, Thanksgiving is, is a rather important holiday. It's one of the uh, state holidays that we can really kind of get behind and even have some extra relevancy for. We have someone to be thankful to for all of these things. So these are our cake ingredients here for today. We've got the end of the world. We've got looking forward to the coming Messiah. And we've got thanks to God for the bounty that he's provided to us. How on earth does it taste when we take these three seasons and on this particular Sunday, layer them up and see what we get? Well, our text today, paints a picture that brings in all three of these seasons simultaneously in a dark and optimistic and beautiful and thankful way. Our text today is taken from the 24th chapter of the Gospel of St. Matthew. We'll start reading at verse 12. It says, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The context for these verses is entirely Judgment Day. Uh, When we're looking at these, Jesus is uh, about to enter into Jerusalem. He's prophesying the fact that Jerusalem is going to be absolutely decimated. He's also using that as a picture to look forward to the end of the world in which everything Is going to be entirely decimated. He's talking about how evil and horrible the world is going to be. These are the verses where that uh, familiar line, the abomination that causes desolation, uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, that these come out, those immediately after, are Advent verses uh, for today. And actually, this is a side note, but uh, I was taking a look at the abomination that causes desolation. The word being used for abomination right there is bedeo, kind of like bidet. The idea is vile filth that, you know, you'd want to avoid. And uh, once again, we do have that kind, of, uh, that kind of feeling. So the end times are very much on Jesus's mind when he's talking about these uh these verses now the end times were still kind of a relevant thing for the uh for the children of israel particularly as they started thinking about their own lot in life and their own needs they hadn't had a world that operated the way that they thought the world should operate for a millennium the kingdom of Israel first, ooh, that's a tiny picture, had been divided. You can see the top part there in blue, the, uh, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, and then in the south, the kingdom of Judah. It never reunited after it divided under Rehoboam. It only had three kings as a united kingdom. You had Saul, David, and Solomon. Solomon's son ruined the whole thing. The kingdom fractured and never got back together, and it was a constant point of pain for them the entire time that they had a kingdom. kingdom. They didn't have a kingdom for too terribly long, though, because Babylon came in, and it seized the people, it burned down their cities, and it resulted in the diaspora, right? The the tribes of Israel were scattered to the winds, left everywhere all over the face of the globe. They had no home anymore, When they finally were able to return back to their ruined cities and start trying to put together lives again, it was barely any time before the Roman Empire came through. Marched into their cities, desecrated their temples, took control, enforced their own religions in the area, and brought the the nation under their rule once again. For a thousand years the children of israel have been looking at their uh, at their country have been looking at their world and as far as they can see in everything in every single direction things are wrong god made promises to them and when they look to the north they see rome they look to the east they see babylon everywhere they look in their own kingdom they see idols and objects of false worship and it looks for all the world like it's the end and there's no way out. This love will grow cold, uh, uh, that that love grows cold uh, verbiage that they use here. The word for growing cold, it's the same word as like a puff of cold air. It's this idea that love is this flame, that love is this warm thing, but that there comes a point in which we look at the world and it's just so awful that it turns our own hearts cold to the point that we give a little puff of air and extinguish the little light that we have, extinguish the little bit of warmth and love that we possess. We certainly feel like we're in the same situation as the Israelites oftentimes. Our prayer board reflects that, right? The Lord's hand on the state. We look at the world, we look out the windows, and we see that things aren't the way that they ought to be. That we see a world that is Falling apart. A world in which we have a very limited ability to grab it and drag it back onto the right path. Any efforts of our own would look and feel and be almost entirely futile. So we leave this end time section feeling a little bit oops, a little bit creeped out and a little bit down. But of course, the old testament believers had Advent, and we do too. They looked at their world, they looked at their catastrophes of a thousand years, and they said, we need help. And God has promised us help. He's promised us a Messiah. What we need is a hero who will come and fix things. I kind of admire the Old Testament believers. In fact, I really admire them. They do something, that I think would be unbelievably challenging. Uh, We have the benefit of so much hindsight. Can you imagine? They were told the Messiah is coming and they're looking around. And for 2000 years, they're like, okay, God, is the Messiah here yet? He's like, nope, not yet, but he's coming. I promise. And they're like, you know, the kingdom of Israel is divided. Now is the Messiah coming yet? And he says, Messiah is coming. Don't worry. And then they're like, I've been taken into captivity in Babylon, and Jerusalem's been destroyed. And he says, the Messiah is coming. Don't worry about it. And they say, Rome has conquered Jerusalem and rules the entire known world. And he says, the Messiah is coming. He'll save you. It would have been very difficult, in my mind anyway, to to continue to trust the promises of God during those times. They, They only had God's promises to hang their hats on. Even the miracles of God, like the pillar of fire uh, that, that led them through the desert, right? Uh, we tend to think, oh, in the Old Testament, God was performing miracles willy-nilly. They were all over the place. Every, it, these were hundreds and hundreds of years that these, uh, that these events were uh, spaced out and very limited to specific places and times. It was you know, just as likely that you never saw a miracle of God's uh, back then as it is Uh, in these days, they had only the promises of God to cling to when he said, I am sending a Messiah, and that Messiah will take what is wrong, and he will make it right. When we think about the coming of the Messiah, especially in light of our verses, we kind of can think about it in terms of a voiceover. I, I like having a picture in my head when I read Bible verses. And what's astonishing to me is that if I change the image that's in my head when I read Bible verses, I can massively influence the uh, reading. We had this uh, picture before of a dark planet Earth, a world in darkness, and we could read these verses with that. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And that paints a particular picture for us, right? A dark world, a cold world, and we're left insi- outside in the cold trying to hold our little lights against a world that's falling apart around us. And that is indeed how it feels when we think about it absent the central figure of our faith, because we can swap the voiceover and have it go over an image like this one. And now let's try it again and see how much it changes the meaning of these words. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The world was increasing in wickedness. It deserved any punishment that God would have thrown on it. But even though the love of most had grown cold, God sent the one. He sent the Messiah. Jesus kept his love. Jesus kept his light, even as every power in this world hated him and turned against him. The government hated him and turned against him. The religion that he, that, that he established hated him and turned against him. The people that he had come to save hated and turned against him. His closest friends, whom he'd spent years ministering with, whom he had raised up from unbelievably lowly status, ended up hating him and turning on him. And through it all, our Savior always crawled lower to boost us up. He was the one who earned salvation. He was the one who deserved to be saved. In it all, he never sinned. But on the cross, a trade was made. The darkness and the coldness of the world. The darkness and the coldness inside of us in exchange for the light and love and warmth of his salvation. Our sad, brief, temporary lives in a blackened world was exchanged for a beautiful, blissful, eternal life in heaven, earned by the one. We have a conceptualization, then, of the coming of the Messiah. And in this respect, we have a lot in common with those Old Testament believers. They looked around at the world, saw horrible problems, and said there's only one way that we can possibly get out of this we need a messiah, we need a savior, we need a hero. You can kind of understand when you see how bad things had gotten for them, that when the messiah came, they expected that his job was going to be to save them from all the earthly problems that they were facing. They sure had enough of them. They thought Jesus was going to drive out Rome. They thought that Jesus was going to provide them wealth and times of plenty, that he was going to provide them territory like they had once upon a time had, that, they would rest- that he would restore their kingdom to greatness. They had worldly concerns that were real and legitimate. They had every right to be upset about the fact that they were not free, that they were oppressed, that they were a laughingstock. All of these are legitimate concerns, and Jesus did address them, but he didn't address them the way that they expected. He addressed them by winning them an eternity in God's kingdom. And we find ourselves in the same situation, because we have a world that is a mess, and we need a hero, we need a Messiah to save us from this thing. It's easy for us to get bogged down in the concerns of this world and start wishing for a God who would only be addressing these or who would be addressing these first and foremost, that this would be his job. And yet, what do our verses say, or uh, just after our verses, it says that the troubles and trials that we face right now are the birthing pains of the end times. It's always been a matter of interest to me that I'm able to look at the last day, judgment day, and in my mind, be quite the heroic Christian, standing there as the world folds in on itself, as the oceans rise and wipe out cities, as fire uh, rains down and burns everything, and as I see my God coming back on a cloud. It's easy for me to think to myself, oh yeah, I'll be like, woohoo, uh, this is finally the day. And then I look at how I react to the birthing pains. I look at how I react to the small problems, the comparatively small problems that are only pointing ahead to the things that are going to happen at the end times and how much they consume me, how much they turn my thoughts away from love and towards hate, how they make me regard my fellow man, how they make me wish for things from God apart from, what, the, from the amazing things that he's given and promised and that's where we kind of bring in this final season, the season of Thanksgiving. God has given us something truly unique. I was looking for a picture that I could use uh, instead of this. Maybe you've seen them before. The, the, I, I couldn't find them that where it would be legal for me to show it uh, on our stream. But have you ever seen one of those pictures of people on Mount Everest having like a black tie dinner? No, you've never seen these? Oh, man, I wish I could have shown one. Uh, There are people up on Mount Everest, and they they are in the worst possible circumstances, right? You need oxygen when you're on Mount Everest. You don't necessarily need a four-course meal. And they're sitting there, and they're enjoying this banquet. Thanksgiving, the older I get, the more it feels like we're having a table that's prepared while the room is burning down. Uh, God has prepared for us... A feast in the midst of a dark and chaotic world. He allows us to feast on his forgiveness, to exist on the confidence of eternity with him, to celebrate the fact that in him we are sinless in a dark world. We absolutely feast on God's mercy and that leads us to want to give thanks. My tradition in our household is that we go around the table and we all say what we're thankful for. And if I'm honest, it's always pretty contrived. The kids all know what to say because they know what's going to get an awe from mom and dad, right? They say, I'm thankful for my family. And then the next one needs to one-up and she'll say, I'm thankful from my mommy and daddy and my friends. And everything that they're saying, we say on to, but they're eyeballing the pudding, right? Uh, you know, the, this, this is a ritual that we're going through to get through it. And it feels, honestly, a wee bit lame. I'm not going to chuck the thing, right? I'm glad that the girls get a chance to reflect on the blessings that they have, right? But it feels a wee bit lame, right? I'm saying thank you to God for taking away my sins, not obliterating me, giving me eternity with him forever, and my response to that is to say thank you. How is it that a Christian gives thanks? Well, we see it in how we plug ourselves into a cold world, into how our love shines. Matthew 5, 43 to 44 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy.'" But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That that right there is not so that you might turn into sons of your Father in heaven. It's that because you are sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus showed you how a son of your father in heaven acts towards the world, how a son of your father in heaven acts towards other human beings with love that's not reserved, that is how a Christian gives thanks. That's our act of thanksgiving, to show love, to look at others and extend to them the same grace and the same mercy and the same light that christ extended to us when we look at this very special day at the turning of the christian church here we see three completely different things but layered together they have an important message the world is a dark and evil place and it is ending before our eyes The only way out is the hero that God has already sent for us, has already won everything for us, and is coming again to bring us to where he is. This gives us incomparable wealth in this world. It gives us a light so that our love isn't just a little thing that we're clinging to, to show forth in the darkness by ourselves. It's a love and a light drawn from Christ's own sacrifice. Amen.